Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Up until this point in Galatians, Galatians, the letter that he wrote to the churches, that would be Paul, to the churches of Galatia, he tells them why he's writing this letter. He starts off right off the bat, because there are those who are trying to corrupt the gospel. He explains that he has been called by God, not through the agency of any human or human agency. He also says that the message he received in his delivering is from Jesus Christ himself and not been taught by either human philosophy or human teaching. He gives a little bit of a resume, if you will, of his life, which presents a resume that is the opposite of what you would expect one who would be given this gospel because he sought to eradicate those who we now call Christians. And he has been arguing that because his apostleship has been authorized by God and his message has been delivered by the Lord, that it is the accurate and correct one. And in Galatians chapter 2, he is going to move along in this argument by saying how, in essence, there's been no opposition by church authority, if you will, of his presentation of the gospel. So he's argued, I've been appointed by God, the message is by God, and then now there's going to be this agreement with what the gospel is. And so we see in Galatians chapter 2, now, for those of you, I, I read the New American Standard, and right under the second chapter of Galatians, which didn't exist in the original writing, it talks about the council at Jerusalem. In my humble opinion, that's an unfortunate statement. Now, I will say that that is a determination by people what they think the following passage is about. Um, they're trying to help you out. Um, and oftentimes that's good because you're trying to find what it is you're looking for. And so, for instance, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it kind of has a little heading so you can kind of find it without having to read everything. So usually it's helpful. And there are a lot of people who think that what is going to be discussed now is the council that happened at Jerusalem. And I'm going to, as I said, humbly disagree. And I'm going to humbly disagree for the following reasons. As we're going to read, Paul is going to meet with the pillars of the church initially in secret. That does not seem to be what happens at the council at Jerusalem. Also, if this would have been that time and that meeting and that organization, you would have thought, that Paul would have said, not only in my argument that this is the gospel, when the church got together and had a business meeting and decided what was the way to handle this issue, that they wrote this letter that was in agreement with, in essence, Paul's gospel. But he doesn't. Therefore, I believe that this is a private meeting, and we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 15, which is the council meeting, so that we can see both of those. But it says, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem 
with Barnabas taking Titus also along also. It is because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So Paul says, I went to Jerusalem to talk to the, those who have reputation in the church at Jerusalem, not because they issued a summons for me to appear. As a matter of fact, it was God who in Revelation said, you need to go there. So again, Paul is making very definite that his apostleship doesn't depend on the power and the blessings of others. But he does do what God tells him to do. And God says, go to Jerusalem. So he says, as we all should, yes, sir. And he goes. But he does so in private because he has a grave concern. And his concern is that he's either running or had run in vain. Well, what does he mean by that? I think what he means is that he's been presenting the gospel, which is the gospel, which says that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to follow the law, you don't need to do all of these things. However, he's already receiving, if you will, headwinds against those who are the we call the Judaizers, who are saying, no, no, in order to be saved, you've got to become Jewish, you've got to become circumcised, you've got to follow the law. And that is a significant enough difficulty that he's, used, that he's being at odds with. But if that's the church in Jerusalem's position, then it's going to be even more difficult. So he's concerned of the eventual effectiveness of his presentation of the gospel. But again, he did so in private, which again, I believe, is different from the council at Jerusalem. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's saying, I took along a Greek convert. We will see in other letters, and as a matter of fact, he even wrote a letter to Titus, that Paul considered Titus to be a significant helpmate and almost a son, like Timothy. And so he brought, so if, if you will, not only said, I'm going to present my gospel to you so that we can confirm what's happening, I'm going to bring you one of the converts, a Greek, one that hasn't been circumcised, one who's just still in his Greek culture. And he's saying, when I brought him there and we had this discussion, they didn't make him get circumcised. Therefore, I'm in agreement with them and they are in agreement with me. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Paul saying, but while I was there, other people came in and snuck into our meeting. And notice what he says. He doesn't call them hypocrites. He, doesn't, he calls them false brethren. He knew exactly what they were up to, that they weren't believers who were just sincerely wrong. They were people who were trying to distort the gospel to prevent it from taking hold and, and, and moving out so that they would make sure that Judaism was whole and pure. And they said, well, wait a minute. What are these people doing? And they tried to see to it that the church 
would, cont- would adopt this false gospel. And again, so that we would no longer have the freedom in Christ, but would be gotten back unto the bondage of the law. But we, in essence, being Paul and Barnabas and Titus, and I suspect those who are the pillars of the church, but we did not yield in subjection to them for an even an hour. Not even temporary. This is so important that we are not going to distort the gospel for any purpose. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. For from those who are of high reputation, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, when you read this, some would say, well, boy, Paul's being kind of harsh to the people who are of reputation. Paul's making a couple of, of statements here. Statement number one, which is number two, if you will. I didn't add to my doctrinal understanding of the gospel because of my meeting with them. They didn't add anything to me. It was, a, oh, I saw a more refined ver- version of the gospel. It's, nope. I had a revelation from Jesus Christ. He taught me nothing they had to say changed my theological approach because Jesus already taught me. The second thing he's saying is, well, they're of reputed reputation. And in the church today and in society, in our culture, oftentimes, if you have a briefcase or if you're supposed to be an expert, oh, we're supposed to listen to you, even though as an expert, you keep giving us bad advice. But you're the expert. So we follow the advice, and it's bad advice, and then the next time to accept advice, we take it from the expert, even though it doesn't work out. Paul's saying, they were of high reputation. That's great. But I also understand what God says. God says he is not a respecter of persons. If he were, none of us would be sitting here today. We are not the greatest. We're not the most warm and fuzzy. We're not the most brightest. We're not the most noble. We are what God chose us. He's not impressed with the reputation. And it goes even further back, but a perfect example was when God was going to anoint through Samuel a king. And when Samuel came to the oldest son, he was strong, he was tall, he was good looking. Samuel goes, this has got to be the guy because we look at the inside, I mean the outside. But the scripture says, but God looks upon the heart. So if these people are of reputation, and if Paul is an apostle, and he is, and if these are leaders of the church, and they are, it is not because they are significant, but it's because God had called them. And I think especially all of us who are believers, but especially pastors and evangelists, ought to remember, no matter how successful we are, we aren't successful. It is God's Spirit who draws all people to Him. So if thousands of people hear my voice today and, and come to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives, the only impact I will have had upon it is that God used my voice, but God's Spirit drew them in. 
So it doesn't matter about my reputation. And he says, but on the contrary, verse 7, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the, to the Gentiles. He's saying, there wasn't a distinction. Peter was used of God to evangelize the Jews, those who were circumcised. And Peter's ministry was effective, not because Peter was an awesome guy. At Pentecost, it was the Holy Spirit that poured out. And we always talk about Pentecost, but there was another revival that happened that even more people came into the church. These were happening because God's Spirit was upon the people. He was simply using Peter as a vessel. And just as effective as Peter was to the circumcised, Paul says, God has been as effective through me to the Gentile, the uncircumcised. And notice it said that God is the one who's effectively doing it. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul again is saying, these pillars of the church, these people of reputation, the people that everybody says, oh, we need to listen to them. Paul says, we came to an agreement. Peter is still going to do what Peter does. He's going to evangelize to the circumcised. I, because of the grace of God has been given to me, I'm going to go out and continue to minister to the Gentiles. And it says that they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. Now, in our kind of thinking, what we think is they shook on it and they, you know, they, they, they left friends. This is more than that. What they're saying is, we agree with you and in your ministry. And in essence, our shake is an agreement of the agreement that we are in fellowship. We agree with you in your ministry. So it wasn't a nice leaving, but it was a, an agreement of what Paul was doing. But they made one request, verse 10. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Now, the reason that there were poor in Jerusalem was twofold. One, because the church was so excited about getting the gospel out, they sold, many of them sold everything they had and gave it so that the gospel might be preached, so that there might be missionary journeys, so that there might be things happening, and that they would share all things in common. Well, that only lasts for as long as the, the value that you have once you've sold it and given it away. You, yeah. And the second reason is that there was a famine in the area, and Jerusalem was suffering. So they're saying, remember the poor. And Paul's saying, that's on my heart. I want to do that as well. You don't even have to ask me. So they came to, so 
Paul went to the pillars of the church in a private meeting to have a private understanding. But there was a church council that you find in Acts chapter 15. So if you would please go there, we'll take a look, quick look at it. Now some of the men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Pretty bold, pretty clear. You got to become a Jew to get saved. If you don't, you're going to miss it. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, conver the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So now as you see, this seems to be a very much open meeting by all. Now, it is possible that the first meeting that I talked about in Galatians could have started out as a private meeting and then blew up into a public meeting. Again, I don't think so. I think this res resolves some of the inconsistencies, if there are any. The other situations, again, I think that Paul would use what's going to happen next as a reason that the, Gentile, that the Galatian Gentiles should listen to him. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter, don't you know this? Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Without going through a whole lot of detail, there was a time when Jesus says that he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. And people falsely believe that that means that St. That Peter meets you at the pearly gates. No. Peter's first key was he unlocked the Jewish heart. Peter also then unlocked the half-breeds. And then Peter ultimately unlocked the Gentiles' hearts. So he says, remember, I, I, I was involved in that. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Paul saying, I mean, Peter saying, look it, I've preached to the Gentiles. They received the Lord and the Holy Spirit was given to them and they didn't have to get circumcised first. They didn't have to follow the law. They were given the Holy Spirit after receiving of the word and accepting it through faith. And God didn't distinguish between if you were a Jew or if you were a Samaritan or if you were a Gentile. Now, therefore, why do you put God 
to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He's going, wait a minute. Let's be honest here. None of us, none of our fathers, none of us sitting here today have been able to follow the law. So why is it you're trying to make other people follow the law when we've been miserable failures at it? But notice that it's not as so much as why is it that you put this burden on them? It's why are you testing God? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Peter makes it a thing. You don't have to follow the law to be saved. You don't have to become a Jew to be saved. You don't have to get circumcised to be saved. You have to accept Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection as yours in faith. Now, obviously, this wasn't a Baptist meeting because the next verse, it says, all the people kept silent. Because about this time in a Baptist meeting, somebody's going to stand up and raise their hand and say something idiotic. But they, kept, they were silent and kept listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas testify to what God is doing and how God has showed signs and wonders and how they have been receiving the Holy Spirit. So Paul and Barnabas adds to the testimony of what Peter has said. And again, as the scripture says, from the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be confirmed. So we have three witnesses. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Now he calls him Simon. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was, has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So James adds his voice in confirmation, not because I've decided what is it, but he says what Peter and Paul and Barnabas has said is in agreement with the scriptures. If you want to know if you're right or wrong about something, check the scriptures. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James's opinion, his judgment is, is that the Gentiles are saved by faith, but he's asking for them to do something so that, because as it says, the book of Moses has been read in every city, saying, you've got Jews who are going to be a little uh, weak in conscience. 
So out of love for them, I want you to do the following. Don't worry, don't participate in things sacrificed to idols. Now Paul later will do a very interesting thing with this. He'll adopt what we think is a a pretty uh, new idea. Don't ask, don't tell. He says, when you go to somebody's house and they eat, just eat the meat. If they say, oh, that was sacrificed by idol, he says, apparently that's a big deal to them, so you back off and say you don't eat. But unless they say something, you don't ask. And if you bought it from the grocery store and it was sacrificed idol, don't tell. He has some other ideas on the other requirements. For instance, fornication. He says that's a sin that we commit against our own body, so he tells us not to do it. But that's because of it's best for us. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are the elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our members to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words and settling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols and from blood, the things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Notice he didn't say, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will be saved. You are still saved by the grace of God through faith. It's not the following of suggested rules but you'll do well by doing them. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets, they were preachers, themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And I love that. I will, our church, we have a meeting so it doesn't matter when we get out, although I'm very well aware I'm like the, uh, the evangelist who came to, uh, to preach in a church, and he asked the pastor, well, how long can I preach? And he says, you can preach for as long as you want. We all leave at 12. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll pa- I'll pass by a number of services, and, and it'll say, you know, the first service is at 9, and the next one's at 1040. And I'm always thinking, well, what if the Spirit moves? What happens then? Do, do people have to wait outside? Or because the Spirit's moving, do they get to come inside? You know, and so we have great freedom. I can preach a lengthy message. I also know that you'll get up and leave, but at least I, I have that opportunity. So they preach a lengthy message. And after they, and they spent time there, and they were sent away from the rather in peace to those who had been sent out. 
But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others, also the word of the Lord. So again, I believe that this meeting is different than the meaning that Paul talks about in Galatians. I can be wrong. That's why I said it's my opinion. And my opinion, what, $3.95 will buy you coffee at some of the places? So I understand. And again, I think the reason that this is a different meeting is, hey, they sent a letter. It would seem to me that Paul would say, not only did we reach an agreement with the people who were recruited to be pillars of the church, there was this big church meeting in Jerusalem, and they came up with this decision, and it confirms what I've been preaching. But Paul doesn't use it. Instead, he goes, after talking about that private meeting, he then talks about a public rebuke. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the uncircumcised. Interesting. Peter, this one who was preaching the gospel boldly, became afraid of those who came from James. And just as I believe James had wrote in the previous letter, they had no authority from us. Just because people come and say, I'm from James, doesn't mean they're from James. But Peter is afraid of what the believers will say. So he starts acting like them. because he's fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. Now I want you to notice in the other situation when he's talked about the people coming and talking about circumcision, he called them false brethren. But when somebody who is a believer but all of a sudden starts acting contrary, you don't become a false believer, you become a hypocrite. Again, many people will say, I don't want to go to church because there's nothing but hypocrites down there. And they're probably right. But hey, we'll accept another hypocrite, so come on down. But at least in our situation, we are like a hospital for hypocrites. We're trying to get a cure from our hypocrisy. Others content with remaining a hypocrite. But Paul is saying, wait a minute, this is of great concern because of this circumcision, it's causing Peter to fear. It's because causing him to act differently. It's causing others to act differently. And this cannot be accepted. The first time he goes in private because he wants to confirm what the situation is. Here is he's seeing people led into hypocrisy and he must speak. So a principle for you and I, if there's a private difference or a private potential of misunderstanding, go to them in private. But if there is a situation that is causing others or the church to act in a way foreign to the gospel, then you need to speak up publicly because that's what's happening publicly. 
So the rest of the Jews join him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, the one who went and was arguing with those who were the Judaizers saying, the spirit is upon the Gentiles without following the law. He then starts acting contrary. And Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He's going, wait a minute. You've been preaching. You preach to the Gentiles. Up until just a little while ago, you were eating with the Gentiles. You were treating them in all respects as believers with the same privileges and all that that being a fellow believer is. There are no second-class believers. But now you're acting in such a way that it's causing to say the Jews are supreme and the other Gentiles aren't because they follow the law and they they don't. And Paul's going, well, wait a minute. If that were true, then why haven't you been acting consistently all the time? But you know the truth of the gospel. That is that the Gentiles are believers who have been given the Holy Spirit and that you have already received, as we have declared in Acts, that all things are clean, declared by the Lord. I'll give you one little more tidbit. A lot of times, we Christians are similar. Well, we'll tell those who aren't believers, they need to act a certain way. They need to avoid certain things. They need to do whatever. Then we go ahead and do it because we've been sanctified. We've been forgiven. We hold a double standard. And that's hypocrisy. Now, so that you don't misunderstand what a hypocrite is. In the, on sitting on the Lord's Supper communion table is what appears to be a candle. And it appears to be lit. And it appears to be that there's a fire there. It's pretending to be a candle. If you have a plastic plant or tree at home, you can go by and look at it and say, you're a hypocrite. Because it's acting like a tree or a rose or whatever it might represent. But it's a play actor. The word here is like having a mask on. And Peter's put a mask on by saying that we Jews are different and more special than you, and we will stay away from you. And you don't have to have very much Bible knowledge to remember Jesus was always criticized for eating with sinners. Well, in Peter's situation, he's not eating with sinners. He's eating with fellow believers. But then again, there's nothing wrong with eating with sinners. And there's nothing wrong with eating with believers who aren't quite as good as you, who 
whatever that means. I'm going to stop the message here. There is disagreement on the following verses, and if you'll kind of pay close attention, you'll notice that the following verses will start off with a quotation mark. But there's never an ending quotation mark. And the reason for that is no one quite agrees when Peter is talk, when Paul is talking to Peter and when he stopped talking to Peter. Now the reason I've decided to choose it here, because here I view whether he's talking to Peter or not, and my tendency is to think that he's now moved on, is that in essence he's giving a personal testimony of faith. And why faith and not the law has impacted him. So we're going to save that for next week. And some of the most awesome verses in the New Testament are found in the next few verses. And I want to spend some time on that. So what is the takeaway? The takeaway for you and I is that we need to, number one, know the truth. And the gospel simply is, you've been saved by grace through faith. That there's nothing that you do to become saved. There's nothing you can do to keep you saved. The second takeaway is we need to live consistently with that belief. And you'll get lots of people because we're always hung up. And that's why I'm wanting to go through this letter. Is even in today's world, we're still hung up with, but there's something I need to do to merit it. There's something that I need to do to preserve it. There's something that I have to participate with. And again, as I shared with you, that's an attempt to diminish the glory of God. And whether it's because we face certain difficulties or circumstances or trials or illnesses or difficulties or financial, whatever it is, oftentimes our first thought is, what did I do wrong? And maybe the answer is nothing. But that God might be glorified. He has given this to you. The next thing that we need to take away is that it is good when we're unsure of positions to have private discussions to make sure that we are with the right hand of fellowship. But when we see others trapped in hypocrisy because of our actions or others, we need to publicly confront and repent. And remember, in each of those situations, whether we are the one being rebuked or the one rebuking, just as they wrote the letter, you do well, but it's not you're not saved. God never, ever leaves us alone. Nothing can separate us from his love, not even our wrong theology, 
about salvation. Once we are saved, we are saved. He keeps us. Now it would be great that by our life and our actions and our words, that no one would be surprised that we are believers. But our actions do not dictate our salvation. There's some things our actions do, and we'll talk about that in the future. But salvation is not by your actions, but by his.